I felt a little bit like a yo-yo this morning, up and down uh, so much, but um, we're going to go ahead and dive right into the message, Romans chapter 16. And for those of you that realize we're getting to the end of the book, we've got three more weeks left in the book of Romans, counting this morning. So we'll have two more um, after this, and then we're going to move into a biblical marriage series. And so I just kind of wanted you to know where we're going. You know, a couple weeks ago when we started, we, we jumped into 16. We read the first four or five verses, four and a half verses. And um, one of the things that we learned there was that we were meeting family. And the temptation when you get into this section of Romans is just to say it's just a list. Just a list. I mean, you're just flying through names. I, I felt bad for Josh this morning. I felt bad for anyone who got that scripture reading this morning because... Uh, we could put 15 people up here and you probably get 15 different pronunciations of certain names. And that's, uh, that's to be expected. They're not familiar names. But one of the things we've got to realize is that this, this is more than a list. This is a family. This is our family. This was Paul's family. And um, if we don't take, take an interest in that, we're not going to have an interest in this section because it's just going to bore us to tears. And it's kind of like the genealogy sections in the Old Testament. It's like, ah, uh, yeah, I always loved those when I was a younger Christian and, and I was doing a Bible reading plan because I was like, oh, sweet, I get a free day because I'm not even going to read those and I'm going to go do something else. But, you know, if we approach this the same way, we're going to miss out, I think, on some blessing that the Lord's got for us here. And one of the things I find interesting is that in, in the year 2017, over 12 million Americans spent money to take DNA tests to check their ancestry, to, to find out where they come from, that that was so important. And in fact, <clears throat> in 2017, those 12 million Americans, that was more Americans in that one year who did that than all other years previous combined. And so you see that's going to be a pattern going forward. People are very interested in their ancestry, and there's multiple websites out there that will help you do that. But this is more than, than just an ancestry. This is your spiritual ancestry. In fact, who knows if we trace your spiritual lineage back through the ages from person to person, from disciple maker to disciple maker, you may have found your origin. The person that shared the gospel with you may have come from one of these people that we're reading about in the passage. Isn't that cool? I mean, those are, those are some of the, thing, the cool things to think about. And we also looked last week, we looked at Phoebe. Phoebe was probably the one who delivered the letter to the Romans. The reason you have it seated uh, in your hands or on your phone is because of Phoebe. We've got a lot to be thankful for, for her. And then we've got Priscilla and Aquila we looked at last week. This week, we're going to start looking at a gentleman by the name of Epinatus. And in verse 5, the second part of verse 5, we see that Paul says, Greet my beloved Epinatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Now, you're going to find this a lot in this section. This is the only verse in the Bible that mentions this guy. Only verse we have it. And it's kind of unfortunate because when we look at textual variants in the scriptures, we actually have one here. And that's why if you've got a King James or New King James, you're going to, it's going to read Achaia. And if you've got an NIV, NASB, ESV, um, you're going to, it's going to read Asia. Okay. And there's, if we put the Greek wording up there, you can see why a scribe may have you know, scribbled something a little sloppily and it could have been misread for one or the other. So how do you find that out? Well, most biblical textual critics will lean toward Asia. 
Okay, they'll, they'll lean toward Asia as the, as the correct and the strongest attested to wording, whether that means they have more copies or it's just harder to make a mistake that way. Those are the things that textual critics spend hours on. I was glad I only had to take one class on that in seminary because it was like a mind-blowing type class and not, not in a good way, like banging your head against the wall kind of way. It was just, for me, it was a little too much detail in the weeds. I just didn't want to get there unless I had to. But anyways, I'll save you a lot of research. Most critical textual critics believe it's Asia. So when we think about Asia, it's very important uh, to understand that if this guy was one of the first believers in Asia, that's pretty cool. That's pretty significant because when we look at um, Asia, he, he most likely means Asia Minor. And Asia Minor, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to letters to churches, that's like where it's at. That's the hub. In fact, I'm going to pull a map up here. And this will kind of show you, although that's probably very hard to read. Um, actually, I can read it just fine, but I'm five feet away. But this is Asia Minor up here. And if you could read some of these names, you would recognize them. You've got the island of Patmos right off the coast, which is where John wrote the book of Revelation. Um, you've got um, Miletus, you've got Colossae, you've got Laodicea, you've got Hierapolis, you've got Philadelphia, you've got Ephesus, all of these churches that we see mentioned in the scriptures. In fact, you can take uh, today, you can take cruises in, in, in the Mediterranean Sea and go visit all of these churches. And this is where Epinetus was from. He was among the, the first fruits, Paul says, first fruits as to uh, who got saved in Asia first in terms of Paul's missionary journeys there. This was one of the first guys that trusted in Christ. Now, we, know, we realize now that he's greeting him in Rome. So somehow Epinetus made it from this area all the way over to Rome. We don't have that detail in the scriptures, but that's where he's residing when Paul writes to him. You know, one of the things we learn about in the area of Asia Minor is that Paul had a thriving ministry there. In fact, he spent two years there, we're told, in the city of Ephesus, teaching at the school of Tyrannus. And, and when he got done, this is what the text tells us, that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so you see this was a wide-spreading, wide-ranging ministry of the Apostle Paul. And that is, that is an incredible thing uh, to think about because when we think in terms of missions, when we think in terms of reaching people, the, the old-school mission was, hey, we've got this map here. We've got these five major cities. We need five missionaries to go to those five major cities, right? We need to... Sp- we need to spread out. And so I, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to go to this city, and then I'm going to go to this city, and then I'm going to go to this city. And this is how we spread the ministry. Paul camped out in one place. He, he started with a hub in Ephesus. And then what did he do? He trained and equipped, and he tasked them with reaching their world. And you know, some people's world may extend out two to three people. Awesome. Awesome. Then let your world reach out to two to three people. And then the two to three people out here, one person has another two to three. One person has 15. One person has 10. And you know, if we just buy into disciple making in a small setting saying, you know what? One person's enough. Two people are enough. I don't have to have a room full of 18,000 people to have an impact for Jesus Christ. And see, one of the things he goes on to say is this. Not only was Epinetus a, 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 a saved member, but he was the first fruits. And what does first fruits typically mean in the Old Testament? 
there's more to come, man. <laughs> there's more coming. Like I'm going to give my first fruits to the Lord because I know I'm going to have a field full of harvest. That was the Old Testament Jewish mindset. That's why they could give up their first fruits. You know, imagine a farmer going in planting crops. Typically, what do, what do you do when you plant a garden? Don't you want that first tomato off the, the stem? Don't you want that first blueberry or whatever you're growing off of the, the tree? That's typically what we do when we plant and we farm. And yet the Jews would say, you know what? I'm going to give the first fruit to God because I realized without him, I'd have nothing anyways. But I'm also going to do it by faith, knowing that if I give away this first, there's more to come, right? It's like that infomercial I mentioned earlier that just never ends. And, but wait, there's more, but wait, there's more. And that's exactly what happened in Asia Minor through uh, the ministry of Paul and also through the ministry of, of Epinetus. In fact, we, we see that the entire book of Revelation written probably some 30 years after this is addressed to churches in Asia Minor. There were churches located there that were in existence, that were thriving. Some of them were thriving. Some of them weren't so much, uh, like we think of Laodicea. But um, they were there. And so Epinetus was... Uh, a great example of the multiplication that Paul was into, exponential multiplication, investing in people, tasking them with reaching their world, and then tasking them to task who they reach to task them to reach their world, right? We're always casting out that vision. We're not interested in one generation discipleship. You know what one generation discipleship is? It's kingdom building. One generation discipleship, I get you to come sit at my feet and that's all I do. I'm building my kingdom. I want to get as many people in as possible. True discipleship says, you know what? Come in and get out of here. Come in and get out of here. And you're constantly working yourself out of a job. That's disciple making at its core. So this is what we see even illustrated with Epinetus. Going on to verse six, we see this woman, Mary, mentioned. And and it says about her that she labored much for us. She was exhausted. That's what the word says means. Greet Mary who labored much for us. Now, one of the things that's kind of unfortunate, there's a lot of Marys mentioned in the Bible. It's kind of a common name in biblical times. So we really don't know this woman's identity. What we do know about her is that she labored much for the apostle Paul and his team. Again, uh, she couldn't have done that in Rome for him. Why? Because he hadn't been to Rome yet. She was in Rome now, but somewhere along the line, she had benefited Paul and his team And this word labor means to be worn out, to weary yourself with labor or toil. Um, And then notice, not only did she labor, but notice he adds another descriptor. It's much, which just describes the quantity. So he's really emphasizing that this woman went all out in her labor for the gospel and supporting Paul and his missionary journey. You know what I find interesting about the word is if you trace this word in Romans 16, it's used three times. This, this, this idea of laboring to the point of exhaustion, and all three times it's used of women. This is a mental note, just an observation. Really fascinating that, and I mentioned last week, that when Paul looks at the church of Jesus Christ, he may see distinct functions for certain people, but he, seems, he sees the same intrinsic worth and value in every member of the Church of Jesus Christ. That's why I appreciated what the young people shared in their testimony with DM2. You don't have to wait until you're 25 and graduated from college and married and have a kid, you know, and a, and a house and two and a half cars and a picket fence before you can serve Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait for that. 
You don't have to, you don't, it's time to grow up, right? That's the, that's the whole topic of our series on Wednesday night. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't care how old you are, you are equipped with the same resources. You are born spiritually with 10 fingers and 10 toes. You're not waiting for the 10th toe to grow when you turn 25. You got it all. You got the spirit of God. You got the word of God. You got the same resources that someone who's 85 has. And so it's about time as a church when we come together individually and do the part that God's calling us to do by faith. And I know for many of us, that's scary because that means things have to change. Priorities have to change. Energies have to change. I get it. I get it. That's frightening. But I'm just saying this. Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and rose again, has a purpose for you. He wants to gain value out of the skill set and the gifting that he's given you. And he wants to do that to benefit local church believers that are right here in Noonan, Georgia. And see, that's for all of us. That's for everybody. There's no age limit, nor do you retire from the ability to benefit the local church. This is, this is where we're at. And so we see that this woman was exhausting herself to the point of really falling over. And it seems like the way Paul wrote it is she did this multiple times. And you know what? I will just say this. These are the unsung heroes of the local church everywhere and throughout time. This woman right here. It's just a list, right? Yeah, she's just some lady. No. She greatly poured her life, and you and I benefit from this today. We don't know what she did. We don't know who she is. We don't know how much she did. But we know that she benefited the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and he felt the tangible benefits. And you know what? We have unsung heroes in every local church throughout the history of the church since the day of Pentecost, just like this woman right here. And you know what? We've got those people right here. And it breaks my heart when we, when we do try to thank people, and there's always somebody we forget. And I just, I am sorry. I, I appreciate you. Even if we don't always verbalize that, you have no idea what it means to be able to get up and preach the gospel and to have done that for Carl Green for over 30 years in this church so that he can focus on the ministry and all of the unsung heroes that have gone on behind the scenes. I just thank you. That's all I can say. Thank you so much. And I think the Lord will reward that one day. Don't, Don't grow weary in your labor. Do it as unto the Lord and realize that there's value there. And so Mary was one of those women. In verse 7, we meet another couple, great Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Now, Andronicus was a male name and Junia was a female name. And so it's most likely they're a married couple, much like Priscilla and Aquila that we read about earlier in Romans 16. But we find out four things about this couple. They're described in four ways. And the first way is, is Paul says they're his countrymen. It's an interesting word because it could be used um, of a kinsman or a kinswoman. In other words, a blood relative. It could be used of a blood relative. Or it's used in a wider sense of someone from the same nation. And this is actually how Paul uses it in Romans 9.3. He talks about Jews, um, Jewish people being his countrymen. Same word that's used here. Um, But what's really interesting about it is they were now in Rome, but apparently they were in Jerusalem before. We'll kind of look at why we say that. So these could have been blood relatives of Paul. 
that he mentions here. It's kind of interesting if that's the case, because typically when blood relatives put their faith in Christ, what do they typically want for all their other relatives? To, to also put their faith in Christ and get saved. So if they were relatives of Paul, this might have been a couple who was specifically praying for Paul's salvation as a young man, knowing he was a geared up, geeked out Pharisee, just like, you know, high, on hyperdrive, saying, maybe begging for the salvation of just this young man. But um, again, we don't know if they're his blood relatives or if he's using this in a generic sense for countrymen. The second thing we learn is he calls them my fellow prisoners. Now, since Paul was not presently in prison when he wrote this, he, he probably was using this word metaphorically of their service to Christ. Um, that's definitely a possibility. In fact, when we see later in the book of Colossians, in the book of Philemon, he actually mentions two people that were fellow prisoners, and, but he was in prison when he wrote. So we assume that they were with him in prison when he wrote those epistles. But one of the things we find interesting in, is mentioned in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul actually says that he's in prisons more frequently. So I think that there were probably imprisonments in the apostle Paul's life that we're not even aware of. Maybe they were short term. They just didn't, they didn't make the radar screen of Luke to record, or maybe they happened after Acts 28, but at some level they could have been prisoners with him somewhere. Okay. And we see actually one of those temporary prison stays in the, in the city of Philippi um, in Acts 16. And so um, that could be a possibility too, or it could just be describing that um, their service to Christ as a, as a prisoner, recognizing that their life was not their own. We don't really know. Uh, he just says, my fellow prisoners. The third thing we find out, which is interesting, is that this couple uh, were of note among the apostles. And so apparently Andronicus and Junia were of note and reputation, meaning it just means they were well thought of. They were distinguished. Uh, they were eminent. They, they, you know, if you went to Jerusalem and, and asked Peter, hey, do you know Andronicus and Junia? Oh, yeah, I know them well. Oh, wow, great couple. Right, just, just the idea that they would stand out to the apostles in some way. And so this may have meant that they had been in Jerusalem and possibly ministered to the apostles there in some way. Um, and then the other thing uh, it may have went and will, may have meant, and we'll get to that here in the fourth part, is this next phrase. And that is this, who were also in Christ before me. Okay, so, so Paul identifies this, this couple, and, and let's just put it in, in modern day terms. They got saved before Paul did. They, they were a part of the church before Paul did. And, and I want you to notice the phraseology here. And I'll, and I'll tell you why I bring this up here in a second. But notice the phraseology. He says, who were also, notice that next phrase, in Christ before me. He doesn't say they were believers. That could describe any Old Testament saint. Okay, so when he says they're in Christ, what's he talking about? That means they were in the church. They, in other words, they got saved either at the day of Pentecost or or between the day of Pentecost and the, between the time Paul got saved. They were, they were part of the church. And why is this significant or this observation? You know, there's a, there's a theology out there called hyperdispensationalism. And what they'll teach is that the church didn't start except when Paul got saved. That's when the church started. And so they'll argue that, that the church didn't start until Acts 9 or the church didn't start until Acts 28. And so they, they, they reduce everything that went on in the early chapters of Acts. This shoots a hole right in it. Because if they were in Christ, in the church before Paul, then the church started before Paul, right? And for those of you that never heard of that and don't really care, just, you know, 
you could have gone to sleep there. It's not really a big deal. It's just kind of a theology that runs around sometimes that you'll hear of. Um, but obviously, they were, they were believers in the church before Paul got saved. That's kind of the, the point. Now, they could have been saved. I mentioned at the, the preaching at the day of Pentecost. That's Acts 2. They could have been saved. There was a group saved at, at Peter's preaching in Acts 3. Or there could have been any number of personal witnesses along the way. But it had to have happened prior to Acts 9, which is when Paul got saved. And so that's what the, where this group is from. Here's what's really fascinating as you start to allow your mind to wander a little bit. Um, do you know that this couple conceptually could have been persecuted by Saul before he got saved? They could have been in that area. They, they, they could have known of him in this prior state. I mean, that's a possibility. We don't know that again. But the fact that they were of note among the apostles and the apostles were in Jerusalem for uh, you know, a good portion of the first part of the book of Acts, they got saved before Paul seems to indicate that they ran in those circles. And so it might have even been, been Paul's persecution that drove them out of the Judea area where they ended up in Rome. And I just find that fascinating that now uh, possibly the man that caused them to, to lose land, house, leave home, move across the world to the biggest city of the world might now be the apostle that's teaching them the word of God and about Jesus Christ. Pretty Pretty cool things, if that's the case. Again, just kind of speculation there. But also, if this is the case, if they started in Jerusalem, ended up in Rome after they got saved, this could have been one of the couples. Remember, we said Paul had never been to this church before. Paul had not founded this church. Peter had not founded this church. In fact, if history is correct, no apostle founded the church in Rome. It was founded by average people. Average people who got saved, believed in discipleship, went to Rome, started sharing the gospel, and a church developed. Could have been this couple, or this couple could have been part of that initial crew. We don't know. Again, that's not stated, but just to to allow our minds to imagine and and speculate for a little bit, it's just kind of cool to to actually personify these people and, and just bring them off a page rather than just making this a list that we fly through. Now, verse eight, we learn about another gentlemen, and and we're going to learn about a few people here in a row that we don't have any information about, unknown, only place they're mentioned in scriptures. One of them is this guy, um, Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Again, it's the only verse that we have mentioned in the Bible. Notice he's called beloved, so he meant something to the apostle Paul. Um, But the historical records also tell us that Amplius was a common slave name. Just kind, of, just kind of interesting. You know, slaves didn't hold a lot of weight um, in society as a whole. But to the Apostle Paul, they did. In fact, if you go read the book of Philemon, it's one chapter. He calls Onesimus a slave, his very own heart. And he was willing to put his life on the line for him. And so Paul, uh, to say that about a Gentile slave coming from a Pharisaic background, which was just completely um, anti-Gentile, and then to go to the lowest Gentile and say, I love this guy. That's, that's a change of heart. That's, that's a change of life. That's a miracle to see what the Lord did in his heart. But Amplius was one of those unknown, um, beloved saints in Rome. Another gentleman was uh, Urbanus and Stachys. Uh, again, both mentioned. It's the only place that Urbanus is mentioned in the Bible. And then we see uh, his name. Again, just trying to bring out something interesting because we don't really know anything about him, but his name means refined or polite. Uh, but we know little else uh, about him other than he was a fellow worker 
with, with Paul laboring in the gospel ministry. You know, uh, again, it's just a reminder that there's so much that goes into ministry that you can't see. Typically, you see the person up front. Typically, you see the main spokesperson, right? Paul and Barnabas. Those are the people we think of Silas. And yet, all of these people we're reading about were all instrumental in some way to the ministry of the apostle Paul and allowed him uh, to do what we do. We also learn from history that Urbanus was also a common slave name. So he might have been a slave in the Roman Empire. Stachius, again, only place we hear about him, he's mentioned as beloved. So Paul cared about him and he obviously had a role in Paul's ministry. Verse 10, another unknown, Apelles. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ, and then greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Aristobulus. And I'll probably say that four different ways as we work through this verse. But um, Aristobulus. And so Apelles, um, this is also the only verse in the Bible that mentions him unless you've heard of Origen. Um, Origen basically pined that this was just a, a different spelling for the word Apollos. Okay, so that's what he thinks. And there's, there's no really record of that other than what Origen says. So could be Apollos that we've read about in the book of Acts before, or could be a, a man named Apellus that we've never heard of before. But he um, says something about uh, Apellus, or if it's Apollos here, that's really interesting. He says that he's approved in Christ. Now, isn't every believer approved in Christ? I mean, isn't that what we learn in Ephesians, that we're accepted, we're acceptable in the beloved? What's interesting here, there's a unique twist on this word. It means uh, approved or acceptable in the furnace of adversity. That's kind of the, the thrust of the word that he uses here. Now, we don't gain a lot of insight here as to the details there, but apparently this man had gone through some, some level of trials that Paul was aware of and had come out thriving through trials. You know, that is it's just interesting um, that this man was, was probably just a great example not only to uh, the believers in Rome, but also probably to the Apostle Paul on how you navigate trials. And uh, I was, we were even talking with a couple this week and, and just, just sharing with, with, with Carrie and I, that's one of the, the biggest things that we regret as parents. And that is, is we haven't modeled how to navigate trials in a consistent way for our kids. You know, we, we sometimes uh, view trials as, as a way that, that they're designed to, to throw us in a tizzy. And then we have, uh, you know, excuses to just walk according to the flesh while we're stressed out and irritated and upset by trials. And we can just do anything we want. You know, and I, and I just remember even uh, a friend of mine years ago was telling me about how the phone company had, you know, double charged him for like the 18th time in a row, you know. And you know how you get some of these services and it's just like, good night, you know, somebody just hit the right key one time. Like, don't add an extra two zeros at the end or an extra 80 to, to my bill. You know, what's going on? And I remember him say, telling me, he's like, yeah, and I, I went in and I lit into this, this young lady that was on the other end of the line. And I said, this is ridiculous. This is the 18th month. And who do you guys think you're in? And he, and he lit into her in such a way that he could tell that she was tearing up. There's just a young girl who was probably working a part-time job answering phones for AT&T or whoever it was. And I remember thinking to myself, which is crazy to, to admit, but I remember thinking to myself, well, she probably deserved it because that, that company is crazy because I had had problems with the same company. And then my friend said something. He goes, yeah, and I, I felt so bad for that 
as if my problems excused me walking according to the flesh and tearing into this young girl who, who had, uh, had no, she wasn't the one typing my bill. She wasn't the one doing that. And yet I felt so good about myself and then I felt so bad that he actually tried to call in and find this girl to apologize. Well, clearly that's impossible because sometimes you end up talking to someone in North Carolina and sometimes you end up talking to somebody in India and you just, you don't know what's going to happen when you call in, right? It's, it's spread out a lot of different places. But the point is this, this man was an example. You know, and trials are not designed to throw you into a, a hissy fit, to throw you into a tizzy, to disrupt or ruin your life. That's not why trials are designed. In fact, what's the divine viewpoint on trials? God gives them to you and me to teach us something. Now, it's something we should already know, but it's something that we struggle with remembering on a moment-by-moment daily basis. And let me just let you in on a secret. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. You need the Lord. And you know, every trial, every heartache, every difficult temptation, tribulation that we face is designed to remind you of something that you should already know, and that is you need the Lord. You need to depend on the Lord. You cannot live this life without the Lord. And you know, this man right here was a great example of that. He had gone through some level of adversity, and he had thrived through trials. See, trials are not designed to destroy your Christian life. They're designed to strengthen your Christian life. They're actually the food of faith. They're, they're feeding you opportunities to trust the Lord. And that's just a, something that's good to remind yourself when you hit your next trial, which will be maybe t- right now you're facing one. Maybe you're going to hit one later today. Maybe you're going to hit one this week to remind yourself, this is just an opportunity for me to trust the Lord. Praise God. And, it's, and really, that's the divine viewpoint on trials. And this man, as we read about him, must have had that viewpoint. We also have this man, uh, and again, I'll probably pronounce his name wrong again, but um, Aristobulus, and this is the only verse that mentions him in the Bible. But what's really interesting about him as we look at this passage, look at verse 10. Notice that Paul does not greet this man personally. He greets his household. This is kind of an interesting note. He's not greeting Aristobulus personally himself, but he's greeting his household. And so it could have been that this man was an unbeliever who had maybe some believing slaves or believing people in his household that he's greeting indirectly. So what do we learn from history? Well, some of the things that we see from historians is that this man, Aristobulus, may have been the grandson of Herod the Great. Although it's difficult to really determine this, this is definitely a possibility. He was a man of, uh, of status, a man of wealth, He had slaves living in his household. He himself wasn't saved, but some of his slaves had gotten saved. And Paul had had come to know that and sent out his greetings to that. We learn later that during his Roman imprisonment, as he's writing to the church of Philippi, that he had made inroads into even Caesar's household. As we learn in Philippians 4.22, because he says, the saints from Caesar's household greet you. So there are saved people in the Roman emperor's household all the way back in the first century. That's gone a pretty long way from the lake, you know, over in Israel, right? I mean, that's, that's moved. That's gotten into some pretty important places. And so we, we see that. And so we don't know for sure if Aristobulus was this man written of in history, but he could have been. Um, and so again, notice that he greets them in his house. Verse 11, we see that he says, greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. 
Again, this is the only verse that mentions Herodian, but we see that he uses the same word countrymen that was used, uh, that was used of Andronicus and Junia earlier. And so it could just mean that he was a, a Jewish Christian or he could be a blood relative of Paul. We, again, we don't know. Um, here's what's interesting about him. The name itself, Herodian, may indicate that he had a family relation to Herod in general. We don't know that. Um, but that's, that's possible. And it might even be uh, a reason for Paul's flow of thought there from Andronicus to Herodian, that there was some connection uh, to, this, uh, to Herod in general or to um, the, the, the Caesar, uh, former, uh, former Herod the Great. And so we get Narcissus now. And, he, and this is really, he's really kind of an interesting um, character because of what we learn about him in history. We don't get a lot of detail here. This is the only place, um, like Aristobulus, notice that Paul doesn't greet him, but he greets his household. Okay, notice he does the same thing there in verse 11 as he did before. Um, And so again, he may have been an unbeliever that had believing slaves. What's really interesting is if this is the gentleman that, that history speaks of, there was a gentleman in history named Tiberius Claudius Narcissus. And, and it fits in the timeline with this man here and the fact that Paul didn't greet him but greeted those of his household could fit. Um, this man in history was a chief of staff for Caesar Claudius. So he's a very influential man in an emperor's household. And then we know this about him, that he was instrumental. He was kind of behind the scenes in advancing Ves, Ves, uh, Vespasian's career, which Vespasian became an emperor um, years later. And so this was kind of um, it'd be like, you know, a, a chief of staff of somebody's campaign, right, that, that gets them elected. And that's what this guy was, potentially, um, to Vespasian. And, and if you don't remember Vespasian, he became the emperor. Uh, and then his son was Titus. He was the Roman general that sacked Jerusalem. And so you see all these just like little intricate weaving details with some of these people. But again, um, and then he was eventually executed by Nero. This, this gentleman was. He was executed by Nero. Um, and so if that's him, it's just, again, very interesting how the gospel had infiltrated even very wealthy and prominent citizens of Rome in their households through potentially their, their slaves or, or even their kids um, who oftentimes were treated like slaves for a time. So anyways, again, we don't know that for a fact, but that's a possibility. Now we come to verse 12, and it's really, really kind of cool. Um, in verse 12, because you've got this uh, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa who have labored in the Lord uh, and then greet the beloved Persis who labored much in the Lord. And, and again, this is the only verse we have that mentions these two sisters. Um, and, and, you know, I'd like to, to say that they might have been twins. I don't know. You know, you, we kind of do that with our twins today, right? We name them with the same initial. Um, and so this, this might have been the case. So they might not have, but they were two ladies that lived uh, in Rome that were most likely sisters. And like Mary mentioned earlier, this is another use of that word labor to the point of exhaustion. She, Mary labored, and then these women also labored to the point of exhaustion, supporting uh, the ministry in Rome. Then we've got this lady mentioned Persis. And not only did she labor, but the text tells us what? Look at uh, verse 12. What does it tell us about her? Greet the beloved persons who labored much. It adds that, that further description. So she was really viewed as, as a laborer. Paul describes her in two ways. Beloved, meaning one whom he cared for. 
And then she labored much in the, Lord, in the Lord. And again, it's the same word used here. What's really interesting about Persis is apparently she just wore herself out with sheer exhaustion at times. This, this much gives an indication. And what's really fascinating is when Paul wrote of her, he wrote of her in the past tense. He writes of the two sisters in the present tense. They're laboring. But when he goes to, and you don't pick that up sometimes in your English version, sometimes it's translated with a past tense, but it's actually present tense for Tryphena and Tryphosa. But for Persis, it's in, it's in the aorist tense. It's a past tense aspect. And so it might indicate that she um, had passed away or that she was an elderly saint that was moving on and couldn't serve maybe in the manner that she had served before. And so, again, I just point that out just to show Paul's great appreciation for people across the spectrum of service. You know, it's not what have you done for me lately mindset that we have typically in our culture, but hey, you've been faithful for 10 years. You have always been faithful in service, and we appreciate that about you. Verse 13 is, is interesting um, because we get a, a greeting to a gentleman named Rufus who's said to be chosen in the Lord and then his mother and mine. And so Paul is greeting a, a, a man by the name of Rufus and his mother. And, um, you know, what's really fascinating about this is that Rufus most likely or could have been uh, the son of Simon the Cyrenian. We remember Simon the Cyrenian because he was compelled to carry the cross of the Lord Jesus when he could no longer carry it on his way to Golgotha. Um, we don't know this for a fact. We don't know this for a fact at all. But what's really interesting about this is if you go to, to, to the book of Mark and just hold your finger in Romans or you can just listen to me read Mark if you don't want to go there. Mark 15, 21. What we know about the book of Mark is the audience for the book of Mark was Gentile believers, specifically Romans. That's who Mark was targeting. Um, in fact, many historians believe he was he was writing to a Roman audience, um, probably the same audience that received Paul's letter here to the Romans. And one of the things that Mark writes in, in Mark 15, 21, as he's recording this event in the life of Christ, he says, then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian. And then he says this, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And so uh, again, in terms of telling the story of Jesus Christ, why would you mention who this guy's sons are? Unless possibly the audience knew his sons. So again, potentially a connection, potentially not. Um, but let's go with that for, for the morning that there was a connection because I think it makes a, an incredible story. And so you've got this, this int- incredible irony that Simon, this North African Jew, he's coming into Jerusalem for, for this whole Passover season. He happens to be coming out of the countryside and he's just passing. You know, we always say, oh, he just, it just happened. You know, it's just kind of coincidence. You know, he's coming in. But he rolls, he rolls into the Via Dolorosa and he's brought into one of the most important events in human history. Now, I don't even know what he thought about it at the time. You know, he's, you're walking in, you're seeing men carrying their cross. They're going to crucifixion. Probably don't have all the details of what's going on. You get singled out by the Roman guard saying, hey, you carry this guy's cross. He takes it in. And I don't know if he stays around and watches the, the rest of the day. I don't know if he gets back to what he was doing. I don't know. All I know is that this had a tremendous impact on his life. If this is the same, if this is his son, Rufus, we see not only did it impact him, but it impacted his son. It impacted his wife, uh, Rufus, Rufus's mother. And so, um, again, I think this had a great impact on this family 
uh, as a whole. In fact, Paul describes Rufus as chosen in the Lord, and it's a synonymous phrase for a believer in Jesus Christ. And just a, just a small point, and, and um, at, at some point, when we study through the book of Ephesians, which is going to be after Ecclesiastes, um, at least that's where I think we're going, we're going we're gonna to look at this a lot more closely. But I want you to notice where Rufus is chosen. Specifically, it's in the Lord. And, and this is just something to consider when you think about the whole term uh, election, cho- chosen, predestinate, all these things that kind of come into our vocabulary. But notice that God's choice is always in Christ. It's, it's a where choice. It's a vehicle choice. How can you have the righteousness of God to get to heaven? How can you, how can you actually possess a righteousness equal to God's righteousness to get to heaven? Well, we know it's through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's true. What's the mechanism that God uses, though, to give you that? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who, who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Where? In him. See, God is going to use your position in Christ to guarantee all of the blessings that he's given you. So when we see he's chosen in Christ, he's not choosing certain people out of Adam. That's what, a, that's what the Calvinist persuasion would teach, the Reformed persuasion. He's choosing certain people out of Adam. You'll never find that phraseology in the Bible, but where he's choosing people is in Christ. That's the mechanism by which he can accomplish everything he, he promised. The reason you won't perish is because you're in Christ. See, a death has already fallen on Jesus Christ. You are in him, and so death can't touch you anymore. That's why God can guarantee that. You have forgiveness of sins in Christ. Why? Because he paid the penalty for your sins. You, there's no penalty that can reach you in Christ. See, that's the mechanism. And so you see that just kind of brought out simply here in Paul's language. But again, I don't believe he's talking about people chosen out of Adam. He's, he's talking about the vehicle that God chose. Rufus is saved because he's, he put his faith in Christ. And God determined when you put your faith in Christ, I'm going to put you in Christ. And there's no better position to be in in the world, in the history of the world, than to be in Christ. And that's where Rufus was. We also learn uh, of Rufus's mother. And apparently, just based on Paul's description, she had taken care of Paul at, at some time in the past. She had been a mother-like figure to him and greatly influenced him. And um, what a mundane and potentially minimal ministry that probably may have felt like from time to time for Rufus's mother. You know, uh, you know I can just picture Paul sitting at the table and saying, well, I got to get out and, sh- and, you know, share the gospel. And she says, you know, sit down, young man, and you haven't finished your toast. You know, and it's just, it doesn't seem like much, but, but she's investing in this, this young man like, like he was one of her own sons. She took care of him the way that she would want somebody to take care of Ruth if, if he was in a different country. And she invested that care. You know what? It meant something to the Apostle Paul. You think when he got to Rome, that wasn't one of the first women he sought out to, to give a hug, to have a hot meal at her house. I mean, that, this is incredible family uh, memories here that we're talking about. And I, I actually had a similar experience. I, I left one season for, for baseball, and, and um, I was not walking with the Lord, and I just had determined in my heart I was never going back to Texas. I was never going home again, and I was never going to talk to my mom again. That's what I determined 
when I got on the plane to go to Phoenix, Arizona, or Tucson, Arizona for training camp, the Lord put a family in my life that the, the woman just took a concern and interest in me from a, I'm sorry, from a motherly perspective and just put me on the road to restoration with my own relationship with my mom. And if I mention her name, none of you would know her, but she's, she's special to me. There's nine other unknowns mentioned in verses 14 and 15. Let's just take this, uh, these two verses as one unit. Greet um, Asyncritus, uh, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobas, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Again, all nine of these names are not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. What's really interesting is this phrase, uh, the brethren and the saints who are with them. It's repeated twice in these two verses. And so it's probably an indication that Paul is greeting separate house churches in Rome. Remember, remember the churches didn't meet in a big building. Um, like we do in our day or in different, you know, cultures. This was uh, all meeting in house churches, probably just sending a, greetings to these associated groups of people. Uh, again, one of, the, one of the names to note, and, and it's hard because Paul doesn't identify these people as the ones that we read about in history, but there is a, a man mentioned in history uh, named Nereus. And, and again, around the same time frame, and it's interesting because he may have been instrumental, this man, in leading two prominent Roman citizens to Christ who were eventually executed. In fact, uh, this happened in 95 AD. Rome was shocked because two of their most distinguished citizens were, um, were found out to be Christians, believers in Jesus Christ. They were condemned uh, to death. Uh, and, and the husband was condemned to death and the wife was put out into exile on an island. And, and so what they find in house records is that they had a house slave named Nereus. And so some people have connected this man to those two prominent people. So even seeing how a slave uh, could be faithful in their witness to even the people that, that uh, owned them or, or instructed them as to what they did on a daily basis. And then finally, verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Again, this is a common and often repeated injunction in the churches of the New Testament. I've got some verses up there. And this was a common way of greeting in this day, especially in the Jewish synagogues. This was very common. And so it's similar to our handshake or hugs. Um, Even the people that try to do this today, because they think it's like biblical and you must do it because it says holy kiss. um, You know, sometimes it gets a little out of hand and it's just a little awkward in our culture to be kissing people. I mean, it's just, it's just a little odd. And so I think the encouragement there was, hey, this was a cultural thing. What's cultural today? You know, maybe a fist bump, a handshake, a little slap and a back slap. I mean, there's lots of different things we can do that's more culturally in line with, with our culture. Um, and again, I think one of the things, again, just an observation. Notice this, greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, the churches of Christ greet you. And notice it's all the brethren. You to do this to all the brethren. He doesn't distinguish, like, greet, greet some of the brethren that you like with a holy kiss or greet some of the brethren that don't bug you to death or that you get along with, right? It's greet one another. It's all-encompassing. It's everybody. And this, this idea 
Um, not just doing that for somebody um, that you like, but for all people, just this, this friendly greeting of one another. And then notice this, this last phrase, and I, don't even, I didn't put a point up here on this, but the churches of Christ greet you. And I just point that out as a small, subtle, just comment. Paul was committed to local churches. You'll, you'll never find Paul in his ministry just being some lone ranger Christian. I, I don't even get that in our day where people are so tied up to their ministry that they're not even really connected to a local church. And they just, they want support and they want this and they want your, your resources and this. And they're not even connected to a local church. They're like a lone ro- wolf Christian just roaming the prairie lands on their own. And the only time they come in is when they need something. And I just love how, and again, I I know that's a subtle point. That's not really what Paul's trying to make here, I don't think. But at the end of verse 16, the churches of Christ greet you. It means he's with churches as he's writing. He's involved and he's bought into the local churches. So I hope that's an encouragement to us. Next week, we are going to take a little bit of a turn. Um, It's really incredible. Let's read verse 17. Because this is like one of those things, you know, it's like when a pastor says, in conclusion, that doesn't always mean like he's getting ready to be done. You guys know that, right? You've learned that. No, I mean, you haven't learned that here. You've learned that other places, right? So, but, but notice where Paul goes, and we'll dive into this next week, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. It's like, man, you probably should have worked that up into the body of the letter. This is kind of you're kind of waving your goodbyes here and you're like, oh, by the way, let me drop a hand grenade on you. And so we'll talk about that hand grenade next week. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word this morning. I, I just thank you for all of these unknown believers that, uh, unknown to us, but very known to you, very known to Paul. And Lord, believers that, that we, would, we would treasure just getting to meet one day, realizing they're part of our family as well. and. Just, just grateful for the support ministry they had to the Apostle Paul and probably the different ways that they, over, over the years, freed him up to do what he did and, and that we might be the beneficiaries of that even today. And so, Lord, we're just grateful. And it's just a, a rich and rejoicing study to just consider these names, consider these people and what their lives meant uh, to the building of your church. And so... Just be with us this week, Lord. Allow us to just walk our lives in complete dependence on you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.